how most physicists have learned about it isn't by that formula. It's by playing around with bicycle wheels or rolling things or hitting things or lifting rocks or anything like that. They have a tacit, and it actually is used as tacit knowledge, a feeling of how this works. And then they express that tacit knowledge into the formula. And now the formula expresses what they know tacitly. Anyway, Marshall, did you want to say something? Yeah. So then the way you express your tacit, tacit knowledge is by not writing anything. (laughs) (laughs) There's our cold open, folks. (laughs) Well done, Marshall. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with us, I have our four panelists who we will go around and do brief introductions. We'll start with Bob, then go to Stephen, then to Adam, then to Marshall. I'm Bob Terrio. I am a J enthusiast, and I've always been interested in tacit, which I think is going to be important today. I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm an APL and Q enthusiast, and I'm joining the session today from New Jersey, where we've just had Canadian Thanksgiving, which is where we give thanks for Canadians like Kenneth Iverson and Arthur Whitney and Connor and Bob. Thank you, guys. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry about all of that. I'll, I'll have to take that out later. Oh, that's just Canadian. <laughs> I'm Adam Potsevsky. I'm also thankful for those Canadians. Awesome people. Um, I've lived in Canada for a long time. They really are awesome people. Um, mostly, though, for this, I'm really excited about APL. I like tested programming as well. I remember when I was first introduced to it, uh, and it was all very mystifying. Uh, and actually, by the time this comes out, this episode, it'll be the day before I'm running a workshop at the Dialect User Meeting on tested programming. Um, I'm Marshall Lockbaum. I started out in J writing forks there, and then I moved to Dialog and continued to write forks. And then I made BQN so I could write more forks and... So I've been programming a lot of Tacit. Hold on, you made the I language. That's like all Tacit. Oh yeah, yeah, that was that was very much so that I could write forks. You can't do anything but a fork in I. It's <laughs> just forks. It's all forks. I'm I'm so happy that forks are getting mentioned. As mentioned before, my name's Connor, research scientist, polyglot programmer, APL enthusiast, but I don't mention this enough. It's relevant today though. I am a combinatory logic and combinators massive fan. Maybe the biggest fan. I'm not sure if who's who's a bigger fan on the podcast. And that's the same thing as tacit programming. And I I come to you today enlightened. Enlightened from a few conversations that happened over the weekend at the Middlebrook conference. And we're gonna get into talking about all that. But guess what, folks? There's a whole new world of combinators. I've I've been I've been so happy sitting around here with my just normal combinators. And there's a whole new world that I discovered, and we're going we're gonna to talk about it today. And I'm guessing within about 10 minutes, everyone's going to be confused. I've been confused basically since then, but it's, it's enlightening. Anyways, before we get to talking about this, is, and this will be our fifth conversation, if I'm counting correctly, on tacit programming. So if you haven't listened to episodes, I don't actually know the numbers, but they're entitled, you know, tacit one, two, three, four. We will leave links at the top of the show notes for you to go go back pause this one i'm not going to say it's going to help you um <laughs> being less confused with this uh but it might it might and no promises there anyways uh over to marshall for an announcement and then i've got a couple so i have an announcement that's relevant to uh, ios users if you've got an iphone or ipad for some reason and you would like to run an array language on it 
Um, we have just out is uh, an app called ArrayGround, which will run for you BQN uh, and also K. So it uses CBQN and NGNK, and it's a little interactive environment. I think it's fairly simple. For those, it's from the creator of Beacon, which is a cross-platform BQN IDE, if you've ever tried that. So if you've been wanting such a thing, I think that's your thing. Awesome. Links will be in the show notes. And my one and a half announcements, the one is, and thank you to Adam for reminding me, is that I, since we interviewed Kai Schmidt on episode 63, I think it was, could be wrong about that. It's the last episode. I made three different YouTube videos. So I came, you know, I was kind of in hibernation for a few months. You know, I posted here and there, but not very frequently. And then I got very excited by the WeeWa language um, for a plethora of reasons. I mean, my favorite language of the array languages is BQN and WeeWa is heavily inspired by that. So it was very interesting. But anyways, if you haven't seen those, my guess is that a large percentage of our listeners also have seen some of those videos already. Links will be in the show notes. And in two of the videos, I specifically compare BQN and WeeWa to show sort of the difference in combinators. And, and maybe we can chat about that later in the episode. Uh, the other half announcement is that uh, the Middlebrook Conference, I think technically it's titled the APL Implementers Workshop, but I think they've rebranded it to the APL's Futures Workshop. But colloquially, everyone refers to it as Middlebrook. It just happened over the last week. And there are a bunch of folks that I met and got to chat with that we are going to hopefully be bringing on. Um, most excitingly is an individual by the name of Stanley Jordan. Some of you may know that name. He is a four-time Grammy nominee, musical genius, has had an album that was at the top of the charts for 51 weeks straight. Anyways, uh, he gave a presentation where he was playing music and interactively exploring uh, you know, different electric guitar sounds with APL. And it was it was very, very cool. Kind of reminiscent of if you've seen Andrew Sengel's uh, April compiler and what he does with sort of the light show. It was like in that space, except, you know, completely different because he's it's not just lighting up sort of the backdrop behind a DJ. In most cases, he is actually playing music. Anyways, very excited. We I chatted with him and he said, be happy to come on. And there's also a bunch of other folks, Bob Smith on NARS 2000 and some other folks that we're going to hopefully be getting on. And that's the end of that announcement. On to, oh, actually, Bob's going to say something. This is one of the reasons, uh, actually, WeeWa was the first one that I really had a sense. We recorded WeeWa before it became popular, uh, like really popular. And it was due to Marshall actually hooking into it. Yeah, so I knew about WeeWa in like April. Yeah, maybe other people knew, but I was following the development and all. You were way, way before uh, the cool kids were there. But because Marshall's here, I found out about it. And within a couple of days, we we had uh, Kai coming on. And then it started to pick up even before we released the episode. But then to watch what happened after the episode was just amazing. And it, it was one of the reasons that I, I really wanted to have this kind of a podcast put together was because it draws people in. And the Staniel Jordan thing in the Minnowbrook is true as well, because there's people who don't know about what's going on in the array languages, even if they're in the array languages. Yes, yes. And, and as a result, this kind of crossing over, as it, as it grows, I mean, we're now into our second, third year, I guess, um, episode 64. But um, as, as this grows, I think you'll see more of that cross-pollination. I think that's really important, and that is one of the big things that I thought was missing in the array language community. Yeah, I definitely feel... Since I've started, you know, taking an interest slash falling in love with array languages, like in the last little bit, there seems to be like an inflection point. Like I've, we've seen, I think 
because we actually had multiple topics that we were discussing and fighting over which one we were going to talk about first. And so in the next couple episodes, we're going to be having the other discussion that we're not having today, which is about uh, uh, game programming in array languages. And there's been videos coming out uh, of individuals that are basically showing how to make little mini games in BQN, you know, the 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 WeeWa excitement on Discord. And anyways, and, and then, you know, I think the vibe at Minnowbrook, I talked to a few people that said like this... This APL conference feels kind of different than the ones in the past where it seems like there's a, a lot of really exciting, interesting stuff that folks are doing. And uh, especially when you look at the number of like younger employees that uh, Dialogue Limited is, is hiring, like when when Morton Cromberg, the CTO, was going through a slide deck, like I was expecting like one or two slides and then he went to a third slide and then he went to a fourth slide and like literally like the, the pictures of faces were f- sliding off the screen. And I was like, holy smokes, like uh, this dialogue is hiring uh, quite a new folks. And a lot of them are, are, you know, just out of university. And so very exciting and uh, looking forward to chatting with those folks and, and seeing, you know, in the next couple of years, who's the next person to, uh, to create an array inspired language. That being said, here we go, folks. I'm enlightened. Let me tell you the little story of what happened. So we all know, hopefully about forks, you know, they are, both monadic and dyadic. And that's, there's two things I want to talk about. We'll get to the second one. We're going to talk about the first one though first. And up until this last week, I thought that that was, that was just it. You've got your forks. They take three functions, three verbs, whatever language you want to, you know, uh, J calls them verbs, uh, APLs call them functions. And they form one of two patterns. You know, uh, the monadic fork takes two unary functions and applies those to the same argument and then takes the results of those and passes that to a binary function. So that's your monadic fork. Dyadic fork is the same thing except replace your unary functions with two dyadic functions, and then it takes two arguments and follows the same pattern. And there's a bunch of other combinators, uh, you know, and I think I should clarify this. I was causing confusion in the last episode with Kai about WeeWa because I was referring to the BQN uh, combinators as right and left when I meant to say um, before and after, which is what they're actually called, correct, Marshall? Um, yeah, yeah. And and also and also we need to be we need to be more explicit in that because we have ambivalence, we have overloading. There's there's the monadic uh, before and after, and the dyadic before and after, which all co- correspond to four different combinators. And I think a lot of the times I was speaking, one, I was saying uh, right when I meant before, <laughs> and then two, I was specifically referring to just the monadic one, not the dyadic one, and so. A couple of the examples when Kai was talking about, I think, anyways, the point is, we got to be more explicit. I have to be more explicit, specifically. I just noticed that when I was editing it. But here's where things get interesting, is that while I was at Minnowbrook, people were talking about, or a few people were talking about undenoted notation and whether that was a bad thing. And we've heard this from Henry Rich before when he refers to some of these, you know, patterns as invisible modifiers. It's invisible, the, the composition, and it's just there because you're juxtaposing things together. And I was like, what did Henry actually call this? Because a couple of people were referring to this as undenoted. And I was like, let me go look up actually what, you know, Henry called it. And in Googling or on the, uh, the J uh, software site, I Googled invisible modifiers and came across this page called uh, modifier trains. And it's just a table with some color highlighting. And I stared at this table for a little bit. And then it, I can't remember if it took five minutes or 10 minutes, but I realized that this is a whole new set of forks, basically. And what Jay refers to the forks that I just explained, the ones that exist in APLs as monadic and dyadic forks, those are known as uh, verb trains because they consist of only verbs, only functions. 
and the arity of those functions determines the pattern. But in J, they also have something called modifier trains. And I think actually it was just a couple episodes, or maybe it was you, Marshall, you pointed out, or it might have been you, Bob, that modifier is actually the umbrella term for both adverbs and conjunctions. Whereas in APLs and BQN, we refer to those as operators and modifiers. And so J is the only language that actually has an explicit name for a monadic modifier and a dyadic modifier, which correspond to adverb and conjunction. And it's important to know this because on the table, they have letters that represent V for verb, A for adverb, C for conjunction, and N for noun. And so in APL speak, you can think of verb as function, uh, adverb as monadic operator, uh, conjunction as dyadic operator, and then noun as array. And, uh, you know, similar conversion for BQN. And at this point, probably everyone's lost. But the point is, is that based on these four letters, depending on how you juxtapose them in a three train, you get a modifier returned that can take functions as arguments, which, which basically means is like the forks that we knew before, which Jay calls verb trains, I basically in my head call those combinators. And this set of modifier trains, a.k.a. adverb and conjunction trains, a.k.a. operator trains, are three things that, when juxtaposed, return you a modifier or an operator. And I think of those as, like, higher-order combinators. They're combinators that basically follow the exact same pattern in terms of monadic and dyadic, uh, but you can put operators in there, and then instead of forming a function that takes arrays, you form an operator that takes functions. And this is just mind-blowing. And the last thing I'll say, because Adam's got a, a comment, is I'm going to give a talk at some point called the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail of combinatory logic. And that is, there's two of them. There's the triple conjunction. We're talking conjunction, 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 folks. Me and Peter Mickelson, who's one of the, the C devs working on the APL implementer at Dialog APL, we spent probably two or three hours. I can't remember if it was Friday night or Saturday night. You know, there might have been some drinks involved. So we might have been, you know, not at the top of our mental acuity. But we were trying to figure out, one, like, is there even a use for this? And also, hopefully everyone here can just suspend whether this is actually a good idea or useful. I'm not really interested. <laughs> I mean, I am. But, you know, whether or not this is a useful language feature is um, less interesting to me, uh, the, you know, than compared to the fact that this actually exists. And so what we were trying to do was figure out a triple conjunction that's actually useful. And the, and the two outer conjunctions that I wanted to do were a top and over, which correspond to the B1 combinator and the side combinator. And the reason I really wanted this one is because they're basically inverses. A top applies a binary function first, followed by a unary function, whereas over applies a unary function, the same one, to two arguments, and then the binary one. So if you can find a triple conjunction where the two outer conjunctions on the left and right time are a top and over, not only is that amazing, but you require both the monadic and dyadic definitions of each of the functions that you're passing as arguments. We spent, like I said, two to three hours trying to come up with something. We found ones that like produced a result, but were not meaningful. And anyways... So if you're following up to this point, I'm, I'm pretty, I can see Adam smiling. I can see the gears in the rest of the panelists, you know, heads turning. You know, I, I don't actually think you know, one exists. I've also spent like half of the car ride with Morton and Gita and Peter back to, back to Toronto thinking about this. Like I was so tired, but I couldn't go to sleep because all I could think about was like 
the holy grail of combinatory logic programming. And uh, there's another one, the conjunction verb conjunction, which I think would be easier. Um, but, you know, anyways, Adam, over to you. I'm going to stop talking now. This is a whole new world of combinators. I haven't been this excited in a little, I mean, probably since I discovered WeWa, actually, which was like a week ago. But uh, <laughs> anyways, Adam, what uh, what were you going to say earlier? You were saying it was it's three things next to each other. In fact, about a third of the table uh, on the JWiki actually only has two things next to each other, just like you can have verb, verb, or function, function, whatever, uh, to make a two train. So too, can you have two other things to make this invisible modifier train uh, thing? I mean, but mostly I'm just surprised. Henry Rich spoke about this, about these things that were taken out from Jay and then recently put back in. And now you come and say, oh, wow, look at this. Uh, the table was there all along. But... That is the beauty, the beauty of the 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 continuous learning path is that sometimes you hear about something and it sounds cool you might be a bit confused but it kind of bounces off of you and i remember henry talking about that i mean the first time when we had henry on he actually just talked about how it was there and then got taken out and i was like oh man that sounds awesome we talked to Henry a year later, and he's like, guess what? We put it back in, baby. And then I was like, oh, my goodness, I got to go check this out. And I think I did check it out, but I do not remember stumbling across this table. I think I remember stumbling across some other documentation. And if you scroll down past the table, and we will, we will link to this in the show notes if you want to pause the podcast, the visual descriptions and the text descriptions of this stuff mean absolutely nothing to me. Like, I am not smart enough to like, oh, that makes sense. I think when I looked into it, I was like, hmm, I'm going to need to spend some more time really to like digest and understand what's happening here. And I didn't take that time, uh, which is which is like the art of learning stuff. Sometimes you look into something, you bounce off of it. Go ahead, Bob. I was late getting onto this this recording because I was reading a blog post about Seymour Papert um, was really important in a lot of learning education in the 1990s and had mind storms and a bunch of other things. But the thing that this blog talked about was Seymour Papert talked a lot about people being ready to learn. And what that means is, to him, was most people, if they're given a formula, say Newton's formula, F equals MA, you know, that's how you're taught maybe in physics. They say this is how these things relate to it, force equals mass times acceleration. But how most physicists have learned about it isn't by that formula. It's by playing around with bicycle wheels or rolling things or hitting things or lifting rocks or anything like that. They have a tacit and it actually is used as tacit knowledge, a feeling of how this works. And then they express that tacit knowledge into the formula. And now the formula expresses what they know tacitly. And I think this is actually really important for this episode as well, because a lot of people might not be ready to look at things this way. And that's okay. And the way that Seymour Papert suggested is get in and start working with some of these things, really simple things, and just get a feeling of how they go together. And then as you do that, you'll start to build up a mental model. And then these tacit expressions will make a lot more sense because they're consistent. And we'll talk about that later because there's been a lot of discussion in the last week about how consistent they are. Uh, they're not as consistent as you'd like, but they could be. Anyway, Marshall, did you want to say something? Yeah, so th then the way you express your tacit, tacit knowledge is by not writing anything. <laughs> <laughs> There's our cold open, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Marshall. 
<laughs> well, that's well. I'll, I'll interrupt to say is definitely revisit because I know that like same way that I watched that point for your die talk and didn't understand stuff, but I started noodling on that for like two months and then had like two months later. Is if you're listening to this and you're already confused, which I guarantee there's a percentage or proportion, if not most of our listeners, come back and listen to this episode like a couple months later. And I'm just quickly going to do a, a roadmap. If you go to the NuVoc site on the wiki, which is sort of NuVoc is the new vocabulary. It's sort of the reference for the J language. Down towards the bottom of it, there's modifier trains. And when you uh, there's forks and then modifier trains. Uh, or I can't remember what they call invisible modifiers because this term is actually up for discussion as well. Um, but when you go to the modifier trains page, at the bottom of that, there's another link. And in that link, it gets into a lot more detail. Be careful before you go down there if you're not ready for it because it's it, it, it'll be quite confusing. And part of the reason it'll be quite confusing is if you go to that page and you go to the discussion on that page, there's a really good discussion about a suggestion of actually changing how these, um, not so much how they're constructed, but how we talk about them. Because there's a way to do this that makes them simpler, but we're using the more complicated version, and it's just a difference of parenthesizing. And if you use, if you go to the discussion page on the wiki, you'll see somebody suggesting a way to look at these uh, by parenthesizing, that makes the whole thing much clearer. And in fact, I think there's. Uh, it was done by uh, uh, Cameron Chandok, who and he did a great job on it. Because there were things he pointed out that I didn't realize a week ago, and I just there's, there's a lot of things that came clear to me when I looked at how he'd proposed things. But uh, we'll, we'll, we could might get into that later. Otherwise, it can be really confusing, and it's admittedly confusing. But one of the things that's really good about that discussion page is that it does clear up a way of thinking about it that makes it much clearer, and I think maybe the way going forward with these to make them easier to use. All right, back to you, Adam. I wanted to help the listeners a little bit by giving some examples. Um, let's say I want to name the each operator or adverb or one modifier. Um, I can say I can say each gets the, the symbol for it. Um, Occasionally, I want to apply a function not to the elements of an array, but to the elements of the elements of an array. So I might want to do each, each. Um, so it isn't really fundamentally more complicated than being able to say, you know, each, each gets assigned and then the each glyph twice. That is a combinator train. That is an adverb, adverb. Or... Well, and that form actually was never taken out of J. So that was... The one combinator or the one adverb modifier combination that you could do um, for a while. That survived the purge. Yeah. I, I think that there, there's a, that has something to do with each other. That one is very easy to understand. And that one was, was the one that was kept. I'm, t I'm bringing that one up. I know that it, it was not one that was removed, but I think it's very easy to conceptually understand what's going on here. And that derives a new uh, adverb or one modifier or um, monadic operator, which just does an each each. It's not really that difficult. And also, uh, I'm going to blow your mind, Connor. Oh, I'm so ready. You've been using Dialog APL for a while. Uh -huh. And here's the thing. Dialog APL also has modifier trains. 
Whoa. Does it actually? Well, it has a very small subset of them. Does it have does it have the triple conjunction and the conjunction verb conjunction? No. Oh. Cuz that's the thing is I don't actually want to spell the and and henceforth we shall refer to CCC as triple conjunction and CVC as the Oreo conjunction cuz it's got two conjunctions on the side and the verb in the middle. Technically there's a couple other Oreo conjunctions, but the Oreo conjunction we care about cuz what we want is we want a top and over. And in J, it's the at colon and ampersand colon, which is not as beautiful as the hoof and the paw, a.k.a. the small circle double dot and the big circle. And imagine the beauty, the beauty. If you can get the hoof and the paw on either side of either a verb or a conjunction, it's the holy grail, folks. Start thinking about it. If you find one, I've spent hours at this point. One, I can't even find one. And two, if I find one... I'm pretty sure it's not going to be useful. Um, and I found ones that work, but not that, you know, you could argue that you would ever, you know. Anyways, which ones, which ones does Dialogue APL have? So the ones that are, they have these short codes in the, in the um, JWiki table called CN and CV. So that's conjunction noun and conjunction verb, which in, da- in APL terms is static operator followed by a function or followed by an array. So for example... You can do this in the, in dialog APL. You write the word twice, and then the assignment arrow, and then the power operator, and the number two. So notice here, the entity is a dyadic operator followed by something, and that results in a monadic operator. And it is the monadic operator that takes an operand and applies it twice. And in BQN, if you try this, you get a syntax error. It will tell you missing operand. Ah. Listen, Marshall. You already have the number my number one favorite language. Right, well, I'm I'm sure I can fix that <laughs> to to increase your lead here. You know, and actually, I take that back. Let's give it a couple months. Yeah, I was wondering about because, that because you know I'm pretty sure this is a bad idea. You know, I said uh, I've said we've suspended. You know whether this is actually a good idea. I think it's amazing. I think it's beautiful. That being said. Neither Peter or I have actually come up with a useful example. I think actually Peter did mention like a triple each. He's like, if you wanted to do like an each, 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 like you could assign that to a name. And then I think that's even what the docs say is that a lot of the times you want to name these patterns because if you do them in line, it actually is the exact same or maybe even a character longer and just makes it harder to parse. But if you're naming these patterns and then you, you know, add it to your vocabulary, uh, might be more useful, but I'm I'm looking for the inline triple conjunction, the holy grail, folks. We know it's out there. We're gonna find it. So actually, one thing I did do in J a lot um, with the with the partial conjunction application, which is what Adam was talking about. Um, you say if you do it inline, it just applies it directly, so it's useless. Um, but what I would do is actually write function, and I'd write um, under open often, or w- which is each, and then I'd write. Um, parenthesis, semicolon, at colon, so raise a top. And that means after you do this function on the left, then you're going to raise the results, turn it from a list of boxed lists into one combined list, so join those together. Um, And what that lets me do is, instead of writing this function under open, and then putting that in parentheses, and then at the left, I have to write the raise a top. That means the two parts this um this each and the raise atop come together. Um, and I think actually what I do a lot um is write not under open, but just uh 
uh, no, I, I'm not sure, <laughs> but, uh, but I would definitely have this, something that would work with the boxes. And then. Wow. Marshall confused. You know, it's confusing when even Marshall is, uh, is, uh, at a loss. Uh, I know what all the functions do. I don't know which ones I used, uh, <laughs> cause I haven't written J in a while. So, but yeah, I would do something to create the boxes and then something at the end to combine those boxes together. And I didn't want those two parts separated because then it wouldn't be as clear what I meant to do. But putting them together makes it clear that it's kind of one super conjunction that's saying, you know, it, it's sort of a, a flat mapping idea. I want to yeah, yeah. map this thing over all these different arguments, but I want the results all jammed together into one resulting yeah. list. I mean, that's literally in, in functional languages. You know, there's multiple names for it, but I think the most common is flat map. It's exactly yep. that. You've got a structured, you know, sequence of sequences or something. You're applying, a, you're mapping some operation on each of the subsequences, but you don't care about that structure afterwards. You just want to flatten it. And if you don't have flat map, you end up having to do that in two operations. And so basically what you're saying is yep. like, this is a way to spell flat map because these two operations I can just put together instead of having to you know, combine or do them after the operation, which makes it less less explicit that what I'm trying to do is a flat map kind of operation. Bob? I think you've actually struck on one of the uses of, of these tacit modifiers is that it makes you think almost like a meta level above what you would do. You're not so concerned about what you're putting in, but you're looking at the structure of how these uh, operators are going into or these... Well, I guess in verbs, I suppose in J, verbs or nouns, are going in and the structure that they're being put together into. So you're no longer focusing on what it's doing, but maybe more how it's doing it. And in that way... Well, I mean, I hope not. Well... <laughs> I, I think it's uh, by paying a little attention to how you're doing it, you can more easily write what it's doing. And then, you know, after you've done that a few times, you stop thinking about, oh, this is this special way to write it. And you just... You just think about what it's doing and you think about and, and then you write down whatever it is. But do you think you'd get to that next level as easily with? I think I was there. So I was I was just thinking, OK, I want to do this flat map thing. So I'll write this combination and then I'll write um, parenthesis raise the top after it. But do you think you get there as easily without look thinking about the, the tacit stuff? Well, you wouldn't write it in the same way and then you'd have to. I mean, if you don't have that way of writing, it's not as easy to conceptually combine these two operations together. So the tacit combinations are the way you get there, but it's about, um, you know, more clearly expressing what you are thinking and thinking things that are more clear. Yeah. I mean, that is why flat map is such a common operation in these kind of like pipeline-esque libraries. Adam, yeah, you were going to say something earlier. Yeah. So uh, I mentioned this thing about twice. Um, you know, there's an a monadic operator, one modifier in BQN that does the inverse. There's one that does cells. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have those in, in APL, but I can then easily define them. I can define cells. That's just rank negative one. I can define inverse as power operator negative one. I could define a, a limit operator that applies a function until nothing more changes as power match. Um, and an issue I'm sure you've hit at some point is you have some static operator and the right operand is an array and then it clashes with the right argument forming a strand when you didn't want to. Right? Yep. So people tend to either put like yep. a right tag in between them to break them up uh, or they could parenthesize. Right? So I could, I could write, for example, F rank 
something too, uh, and put that in parentheses, the f rank two, and then that doesn't clash with uh, the right argument. It could actually also happen in the left argument if your left operand is an array. It's rare, but it could happen. Um, now, most people that I've seen do this with parentheses, they will parenthesize the entire derived function. Yeah, I was just thinking that. But if you if you parenthesize it differently, you're accidentally using this. Yeah, you're actually using this. And yeah. that actually brings me, I, I for a long time, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, okay, it's a quirk. You can do that, whatever. Or technically, that's kind of what happens, that when it gets to that part, it first binds together the operator with the right operand, and then it binds the left operand to that. However, I have slowly been converging towards intentionally doing this, parenthesizing only the operator with its right operand. And why is that? Because that allows me to do a form of inline concatenative programming. Let's say I want to have a function with multiple modifications. Let's say I want to do uh, f rank one each, mm. right? or f rank one power operator two. Now there is a mismatch in the structure. If I write open paren, f rank one, close paren, power operator two, or maybe even parenthesizing that whole thing. I'm, I have to go from, from the inside and dig my way out or outside in with the parentheses. But if I write f open paren, rank one, close paren, open paren, power two, close paren, then I can keep adding more segments to the right of dyadic operator, right operand, dyadic operator, right operand. Maybe some throw some monadic operators in there too. Mm -hmm. And one place where this comes up, it's maybe a little bit ugly, but uh, we have these system functions in Dialog APL, and some of them have additional options that you can set using a very special operator, the, the variant operator, uh, which both has a glyph and a system name, but that doesn't really matter so much. Um, you can either specify all your options as name value pairs, or you can do one at a time. So you'd write system function, variant operator, name of the option, value for the option, then another variant operator, and then another name of an option and a value of an option, and another, and so on. Uh, but eventually you run into the problem that you need to apply this on an argument and you have this stranding problem. So we tend to need to parenthesize or give it a right tag or something like that. But if you parenthesize instead the variant operator and the name value pair on its own, then you have these building blocks like Lego bricks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you just piece them together. And then that means you can take these, these modifications to the original system functions and move them around without worrying about breaking any parenthesization or causing any stranding issues. Each one is a standalone unit, a modifier. Yeah. And so, okay, so two things I want to comment, because that makes a lot of sense, is that one, Peter, once again, coming up with the actual useful cases where I was, fo I was purely focused on the triple conjunction, because I immediately was like, that's the holy grail. But while I was doing that, Peter uh, works alongside uh, Adam and he found the um, uh, modifier train that you could use to spell the shortcuts that exist in BQN. And he was like, well, I guess, you know, if you wanted to name like a rank one operation, you could, you could do that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. And then I immediately said, that's uninteresting, though, because <laughs> BQN already has those shortcuts back to the triple conjunction. So that was the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing that I think at first... I thought, and I, I actually glazed over this, and I meant to mention it, is, is the reason, because you mentioned that I this had come up, and then, you know, it's been, I don't know, a, a year, a couple years since I've really discovered it and wrapped my brain around it, and it is because this table is so intuitive, in my opinion, and that's because at the very top, 
the first three lines in the three, the modifier three trains, the first one is noun, verb, noun. And that's just the application of a dyadic verb uh, or function. Everyone knows how to do that if they've at least played around with APL or BQ or J. The next two say, you know, this creates a fork. And note this is color-coded. So pink is the top line. And then the next two lines are purple. It says creates a, a fork. One is verb, 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 which immediately I was like, yes, of course. That's both the monadic and dyadic fork. And then the, other, the next one is noun, verb, verb, which I've always taken issue with the fact that we don't really have a name for this. And I think I asked you, Adam, once, and you said that we refer to that as the capital A-G-H uh, fork. Like, I don't actually think it has a name where it's a fork where the left tine is not a function, but an array or a noun. And the fact that that doesn't have a name is slightly irritating. But the point is, is these, the monadic and dyadic fork, and also the monadic and dyadic versions where the left tine is a noun, correspond once again to four different combinators. And, and then you can do the same thing, I guess, not with the two trains, but we'll stick to three trains here. But then after those three lines, which are pink and purple, it then switches to a color-coded um, green for forming a conjunction and blue for forming an adverb. And at first, I actually thought that the reason, and I, I could be wrong about this, hopefully, you know, Adam or Marshall or anyone here could correct me if I'm wrong. I thought that the reason they called it a verb train is because it's made up of verbs. And the reason they call it an ad or, or a modifier train is because it's made up of adverbs and conjunctions. But then I realized, wait, you can also include verbs in your modifier trains. And so, and so then I realized... I, th I think this is what they did, is that a verb train is called a verb train because the train forms a verb. What is returned to you by that pattern is a function. And then I can see Bob shaking his head. And then the reason that a modifier train is called a modifier is because it returns a modifier. But Bob's about to correct me, I think. Well, in a way, um, because actually, if you think about it, if you, well, a verb train is composed of verbs or nouns. There's no modifiers in a verb train. So that's one key. Well, if there are, they're immediately applied to form verbs. Exactly. So, yeah, begin, and this is because this is a, um, somewhat a recursive. If you say a thing is a verb and you put it in parentheses, you can do anything you want to create that verb, and it's a verb. So you could have conjunctions or adverbs mixed in there. Yeah. I mean, the most famous three train of all average includes technically the reduce operator but that is bound immediately with plus which exactly. forms a, a, a verb and then you just have verb 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 again so yeah so the components of the train are three verbs there. Exactly. the components of that train at that level are three verbs but what happens is verbs are parsed right to left so you move along right to left just as you would expect you know if they're in a train of course that train has a different format you you mentioned it before you've got the outside tines applied either monadically or dyadically the center tine always dyadic um so you so that's right to left but modifiers are left to right when they're parsed so this is where it gets very complicated and this is where one of the simplifications that that Cameron Chandok's come up with is if you initially go in and say you're not allowed to have more than two verb verbs or nouns together in this modifier train now the other the other spaces will be 
could be adverbs or conjunctions. If they're all verbs or just verbs and nouns, then they're a verb train. And it's just going to go right to left. And, and you get that thing that a lot of people hate with forks is that if it's an even number in a train, then it's a fork. Sorry, if it's an even number in a train, it's a hook. And if it's an odd number, it's a fork. And that is what happens when you actually end up with verb trains. But if you have to also include the left to right part of it, what he's suggesting is the easiest way to make sense of it is go in and whenever you've got more than two verbs or nouns together, parenthesize those so you're sort of isolating them. And then when you've got all those taken care of, go back and work your way from left to right, taking three items at a time. And that will consistently create what you want to create. If you don't do that, there are some very complicated rules about uh, greedy <laughs> algorithms grabbing uh, things at different times, depending on the even and odd and the components involved. So his suggestion is, let's just, we can leave those in there. Just let's not talk about those and tell people to go this other route, where if you've got more than two verbs or nouns juxtaposed, parenthesize them, and then go back and work left to right. And that makes everything a lot easier to understand. Um, and that th that is because of the difference between a fork, you know, which is a verb train, and a modifier train, which is, again, a modifier train will always have some kind of a modifier in it at that level. Does that make sense? Is, uh, so that makes total sense, but does that, does that mean that what I was saying is incorrect? Because I think they technically are both uh, mutually can work together. So like, I guess the simplified version of what I was saying is that it's not the internals of what you spell, even though it'll always have a modifier. The key thing is, is that a verb train produces a verb, whereas a modifier train produces a modifier. It, is that all, even if that wasn't what caused the naming, is that consistently true? Or is there an example of a like something that is not that case a verb train uh forming something other than a verb or a modifier train forming something other than a modifier well i guess the part of this that, that is is a little different is that some of these three uh groups of threes are not trains so for instance with that that uh, column that you're referring to where it says whether it's a verb or a modifier um, mm -hmm. for noun, verb, noun, that's not a train. That's because it's executed right away, right? Uh, yes, but I mean, I... Well, why would we need to call it differently, though? I don't understand. Why isn't a normal executable expression just a noun train? It's, an, it's a sequence of tokens that result in a noun. Well, what I do is just use the word expression. I mean, this is in terminology, but so... Um, and I think, so first, the... What you said about the the type of expression being named after the result type, I think that's entirely correct. Um, and what I do is I just say, um, so in, in BQN, uh, we have a broader class because not everything's an array. We call the the things that functions might apply to subjects. Uh, but so you have a subject expression is your sort of normal evaluation. And then you have a function expression, which might return a function. and um, I guess there are modifier expressions, but uh, in BQN, all they can really be is one uh, thing. So, well, they can have assignments is what else they can have. So you can have modifier, gets, jot, and um, that whole thing is a modifier expression. 
it's not terribly interesting. Uh, can, can, the can the function or uh, return an operator or modify in VQN? Well, yes. So the in VQN that refers first purely to what the syntax is. So a like a function expression is an expression which is syntactically a function. Um, and then what it actually does at runtime, it could do all sorts of things. It could, you know, on one invocation, it could return an array, and on another, it could return a namespace or a modifier or whatever. Um, but so the the name comes from the syntactic role. Um, in APL and J, you have your um, the the role and syntax is always the same as its type, so they're kind of unified. And actually, Connor, thinking about it, the way you phrased it the second time, now I get you. Yes, you're right. Um, a modifier train will always provide pro, uh, produce either an adverb or a conjunction, and a verb train produces a verb. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's similar to the confusion initially, not the confusion, but the misnomer of, which I, I think I've mentioned it in on this podcast, but I've definitely mentioned it in a couple talks of monadic and dyadic forks are technically... They're, they're not either of those things. Both forks are always triadic. They always take three functions. And the monadic and the dyadicness is referring to the arity of the function returned. And we, like, this is one of the points that I made at my Middlebrook talk, is that we don't have a vocabulary for talking about the arity, the number of functions, that either a function returns or our arguments take. We only have, when we say arity, we're only referring to the number of arguments our top-level function takes. But in Combinator land, your function takes only functions as arguments, except now we have modifier trains where they can't be operators and stuff, and there's exceptions for the tax and whatnot. But we've got the arity of our functions, which is important because it's the arity of, you know, unary, binary, unary that forms a monadic fork. So we technically have a triadic fork, and the arity of our arguments are one, two, and one. And then that returns you a monadic fork, which technically is actually a simplification because I made this point a couple times and then people said, well, actually, and very famous, well, not famously, but uh, very quickly I was corrected when I showed a difference between the difference between explicit and tacit code. And I, I showed plus, you know, arrow, brace, alpha plus omega and brace. And then I said, this is explicit. And then I had plus arrow plus. And I was like, this is tacit. And then like four people shot their hands up and they're like, yeah, but plus is a bad name because technically... That is, that's got two meanings. It can be called in the, the dyadic case, which is plus, but then in the, the monadic case, it's conjugate or whatever it is. And, uh, and so technically, all these times when I'm talking about a monadic fork and this is the arity, it's like, well, there's never ever just a, a unary function. There's, it's got a unary definition and a, and a binary definition. And this brings us to the second point, which has to do with ambivalence. But I'll let uh, Adam, you've got your hand up here. Well, I think I have a vocabulary for this. The way, well, the way I speak about it is... This thing, for example, circle diuresis, is a dyadic operator deriving an ambivalent function. Or we could say um, the mm, deriving. That's, that's yeah. kind of nice. So because that then then I'm splitting up. What does it itself take, and what is it it derives? For example, the backslash is a monadic operator when used as an operator, whatever. Uh, monadic operator deriving a monadic function strictly, right? Whatever plus backslash you cannot use dyadically in dialog APL. Whereas forward slash is a monadic operator deriving in an ambivalent function, and and sometimes it can only derive a dyadic function. And this, I mean, that is nice, but like deriving at first it sounded nice, and then 
three seconds later, I realize that's just a different word for returning. So technically, no, you could just say... No, it doesn't return. It, that's not true. Deriving never does computation. Is, uh... And I think that's kind of the distinction between a train and non-train in, in the JWiki vocabulary too, that there is the construction phase where things are just being bound together, but no code is actually running. Then, it, then we call it a train. And then there is something where there are actually data that's being modified by by functions, whether derived or not. Um, then it's not a train. Then we can call it expression or whatever. So there's a big distinction there. When I say plus slash, nothing happened. When I say plus slash, I mean, you, I... you formed a function though, haven't you? Like that's what I mean when you, re you when you return a function, you are forming that function. But no? it didn't. Okay, right, so you could call it that, but there's no actual code execution happening. It's only binding. We're only gluing stuff together without ever applying anything anywhere. We're not. You can't trace through the formation. Nothing happened. Yeah, well, and this is a difference. Um, so what BQN and J have is they, um, you can have a modifier that directly that does computation as soon as um, its operands are passed in. In APL, you can't applying a modifier never does anything. It always just forms this derived function. I never, I never understood that in J or BQN for that sake. How how does that work? How do you know whether or not to start running code or not? Uh, well, it just depends on what the modifier is. So yeah, see that that I don't understand because then I can't. I have to in, in look into what the uh, operator is in order to know whether something will happen right now or not. I don't understand that. I want to be able to just look at the structure from the outside. Well, yeah. So I mean, the way that I think of this is that all operators. Um, well, I mean, you can also have an operator. I mean, I I could define a block modifier that all it does is it takes its operands and it applies them to some other mod it passes them to some other modifier which it derives a modifier um and that i mean the the result is the same as that other modifier they both give you a derived modifier so i mean i think of this as just a modifier is always like a function in that it does something but some modifiers, the thing that they do is just bind the operands and uh, pass that as a result. Yeah, I mean, coming from functional languages, I think returning a function from a function, people don't think as execution, but it is like what Marshall said, you are doing something like it's it, there's a code path that your compiler or interpreter takes that is going to form something that will perform, quote unquote, an evaluation. Uh, but like really this we're splitting hairs now because like there's there's application which is, you know, one code path, but like the forming of something to be applied is just another code path that, you know, is, is less frequently taken. But Stephen, you had your hand up earlier. Uh, what were you going to say? I just wanted to chime in with um, Adam there. I can say 2017, 2018, where was a fair amount of confusion in the vocabulary used for describing the syntax of Q. And we settled on pretty much the same formulation that Adam was just describing, that uh, the um, the few iterators, we, we don't have such a, a rich vocabulary of um, operators as APL, but they are operators that take, that are monadic, that's to say unary, they take one argument, um, postfix notation, and they derive a function which you can assign, but like Marshall says, no actual computation happens at that point. Yeah, so Q is kind of more APL-like in that um, in that it doesn't have these modifiers that uh, that can do things. And I mean, Q is, from a tacit perspective, 
or or from the maybe modifier level programming perspective, which uh, is not necessarily good. Um, it's very limited in that um, the only things that can have modifier syntax are these built-in modifiers. And I mean, so clearly, you know, if you go through the set of modifiers and you say all any of these does, all any of the adverbs does is to form a derived function, then you know, well, there can't be any other modifiers that do anything because you can't define more modifiers than that. Yeah. All right. So now that Q has been brought up and I was, we mentioned ambivalence earlier and I I'd realized we're already closing in on the hour mark. All right. Bob's got one last comment before we pivot. Just one point of, of vocabulary. Um, a verb mm -hmm. train be, is a fork, but forks are not what these modifier trains are. So groups together are trains. And if you have three verbs or a noun verb verb combination, then you have a fork. And in fact, you can extend that. So you can have forks of different lengths, but forks are not, all trains are not forks. Right, right. And yeah. so this is, and that's a great, I'm glad you brought that up before we pivot here, slightly pivot. We're still going to be talking about uh, tacit programming is that's part of the reason, that's part of the reason, folks, why the holy grail of combinatory logic and combinators is the Oreo conjunction and the triple conjunction, because those are forks. The triple conjunction is three conjunctions where the two outs, well, Bob's shaking his head, it's, but based... No, it's not, they're not, they're not forks. They are trains. They're modifier trains. Let me, let me, uh, <laughs> let me clarify. The pattern that a fork corresponds to, the monadic fork... Uh, and the dyadic fork correspond to is the phi and the phi one combinator, which the parenthesization of those things are applying the two outside tines, either a one argument or two arguments. In the modifier train case, these will be functions. In the verb train case, these will be uh, arrays or nouns. And then taking the result of that and, uh, and apply, using those as arguments or operands to the thing in the middle. And this is the same pattern that the Oreo conjunction and the triple conjunction form. Maybe we shouldn't refer to those as forks because in, in J-speak or sharp APL speak, they aren't forks in the classical sense. But in the sense that what the monadic and dyadic forks correspond to in combinatory logic, that pattern, that composition pattern, is the same thing that the Oreo conjunction and the triple conjunction, a.k.a. CVC and CCC, do follow that same pattern. That was what I was, I was trying to say, if that makes sense. Yeah, the pattern's the same, but the, the, the reason it's distinct is because of the parsing. A fork? parses right to left and and modifier trains go left to right right okay yeah that distinction does make make sense uh, it does make a difference yeah yeah so the, there's been this uh, this proportional even implementation for some people um so that some some people are upset about uh the three function 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 uh, forks um and saying that it doesn't it just complicates the syntax on and saying that you could actually achieve this using two dyadic operators. So you'd write uh, function, operator, function, operator, function, and the two operators together will combine to create the same pattern, the same overall combinator, combinator as what we know as the classic forks. Okay? Um, however, here's the big distinction. If you do that, and for example, the, the cap language, which is quite APLE, um, but uses K style, Q style, um trains so function 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 are just the tops um do, it does provide a syntax so that you write function some other symbol function some other symbol and uh, function to have this pattern the fork pattern um there are two different ways to look at that 
if they are operators, then if you write a long sequence, a long train using these operators, then it will have long, or well, I don't know long left scope. It's not uh, maybe a good way to speak about it, but they will group from the, in in groups of three from the left. So the th leftmost three become a derived function, and that becomes a leftmost time in the next fork going on. If you make them special syntax, so that they're just some glue, then you can choose, and you can choose to make them group from the right, just like APL and J do. In in principle, APL and J could have chosen to make forks bind from the left instead of from the right. Probably doesn't feel very natural to you now that you're used to it, but there's it doesn't contradict anything. And if you see the fork as just another operator, but a triadic invisible operator, then why should it be different from all the other operators? Why should it group from the right instead of grouping from the left like all the other or the like all the other operators do? I mean it's a good question and something that could be explored in a, a, a different array language. And it's actually, it's a good segue. No, no, you don't, you don't need it in a different array language because in APL, for example, today, you can define such operators that do exactly this. In fact, you don't even need to define them. They're in the defense workspace already. And if you just get them from the defense workspace, you can write your, your forks using these explicit operators. They become kind of explicit forks. And they will behave in every way like in any fork you're used to, except they will bind from the left instead of binding from the right. So wait, if uh, maybe I'm confused then. Uh, are you saying that basically, I mean, this isn't a library, but uh, it's easier for my head to wrap around. If, if you were to introduce a glyph that basically is triadic and takes like three things on the right, and so you're basically coming up with a new operator syntax that doesn't require parentheses, like I'm confused, yeah. No, 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 no. No, no, no. We stick to the old the old syntax. Operators only take two operands. But imagine we had F A G B H. Okay. Okay. And A and B are dyadic operators. Then this is a valid derived function, right? Oh, and you're just saying why not do that instead and of if you define A and B such that F A G B H is F applied to the argument arguments and h apply to the argument or arguments and their results given as arguments to g, then you have effectively defined the fork, but using good old-fashioned dyadic operator syntax, nothing new added to the language. Before forks were added to dialog APL, then uh, it was possible to model this behavior using exactly these two operators, which is why they exist in the defense workspace. You can actually go and play with them. The only difference being the binding. So imagine we have the classic average, right? The sum divided by the tally. Let's say we don't want the average, we want the absolute average. So you write absolute value of the sum divided by the tally. That all seems natural to you now, but imagine if forks were binding from the left, then we would take the absolute value applied to the argument, and we would take the um, reciprocal and apply to the argument. And their results would be given as arguments to the sum. And then that would be applied to the result of tally. So actually, well, start over again. First we apply tally, and that gives us a result. And on the result of tally, we apply this three fork, which is the absolute value sum 
reciprocal, which doesn't make any sense. But that's how it would bind. Following? Uh, no. <laughs> I I think I understand what you're saying is that basically there's an alternative way to spell forks and three trains that involve dyadic operators, which you can that that exist actually in the defunds library, and it wouldn't require any changing to this kind of you know three train parsing you, you could do without the three trains and just have dyadic operators and get what we have but the trade-off is that now instead of inline when you're inlining a three train needing parentheses for, par- for parsing ambiguity um, or in the tacit case you don't need those parentheses you can just assign it to a function you would now need two extra characters in the tacit case and zero extra characters in the inline case but uh, the trade-off is that you're going to have two dyadic operators in between your three functions, uh, if I'm following along. Yeah, that's correct. But the important part I'm pointing out here is the binding difference. So whenever you have a fork applied to the result of a function, you currently have to parenthesize, even if you're entirely tacit, you have to parenthesize the fork, right? You would write open paren, FGH, close paren, and then some other function. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we had the operator binding rules for trains, then you wouldn't need parentheses in that case. You would just write FGH function. Yes, I see what you mean now. I would definitely need to noodle on that some more to know what I... Because I definitely... I mean, like, two of my favorite pieces of code ever. One is the Cadane's solution in BQN. And the other one recently was the solution to... uh, Is a function monotonically or monotonically increasing or decreasing which i'm you know marshall you're not on twitter so you won't have seen it but it's match uh after uh sort logical or reverse sort oh, i think i did see that i check your twitter through an alternate viewer oh yeah and it's this very symmetric it actually came out of a blog i don't have their name off the top of my head but they sent me a blog via linkedin exploring wewa and then that was the first or second problem they solved and then I was like, oh, we've got the sort primitives, though, in uh, in BQN. And then I solved it once. And then I was like, wait a second. I can make this, like, beautifully symmetric where both of the matches are on the outside. And then you've got the symmetric, the ver- the vertically symmetric before and after. Anyways, the point being, I've got some beautiful solutions to these problems I like. And thinking of spelling that Cadane's one, which uses a dyadic fork, I think it would decrease the beauty. Um, although I'm, I don't know. You'd, you'd have to show me what those combinators. Maybe if they were like before and after, like symmet- vertically symmetric, and that they, the way that you uh, can compose those to get like uh, different behavior, maybe it would look nicer. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd have to think about it. Uh, One thing is, if you have um, modifiers that do computation, you could actually you could have modifiers that um, that work this way that build up a train for you and i or at least the way that's obvious to me to do it would be to just have one modifier that goes that you place at every place except the rightmost position and then one modifier at the right that finalizes it and what that first modifier does is just keeps kind of a list of all the things it's been applied to and builds it up into a big list and what the final one does is it looks at the list of all the functions and then it built a train out of that. Or any, or any other pattern. Then you could have that final modifier. So essentially, this is like the gerunds in, in J, right? Yeah, You just build up, build up a list of verbs, and then you can finally take that list and do whatever you want with it. 
any combinator at the end that does with any number of operands and makes any structure whatsoever. Yeah, well, this is one reason why I don't really like this uh, method so much because you can you can make nonsense things as easily as you can make something that has a solid theoretical basis like uh, trains um, that's based on kind of the idea of mapping over functions. Like given powerful enough language features, you can make something like this, but it seems much better to have it built in. Well, in PQN, it's very easy to get to this, right? You just write a literal list of functions. Yeah, you can do that. Using too. the notation. And then finally, you have something that applies it in whichever pattern you want. Yeah. And I mean, I've used that for for some patterns. Um, so if I have something specific that I want to do here, but as something that you use for general purpose programming, it's kind of, I mean, it's like you're building yourself a language. Um, and if it's that important, it seems like it should be part of the language to start with. And at this point, I should mention uh, Jose Mario Quintana, because Pepe. Yes, I was literally <laughs> going through the list of future guests, and I was like, yeah. once we do this, uh, I feel like we should also, or I'll finish you before I ask my question, Bob. But yes, I'm, I was thinking what you were going to say. Well, I was going to say, on, on the J forums, yeah. he's known as Pepe. Well, he's really, really informed, very good at this. In fact, he has his own version of J. Um, I think he refers to it as JX, which has some things that he's called wicked functions. And the wicked functions allow you to do things that J doesn't allow you to do anymore. But I'll refer back to a 2017 posting where he first talks about how you can create these, um, this verb that can create uh, adverb modifiers and conjunction modifiers, which at that time you really couldn't do, um, because the the uh, what we're talking about the modifier trains hadn't been put back in yet. That's what Henry put back in, you know, just recently. But now that they're in, I'm really interested to look back and maybe play with this because I was just looking at it last night and I'm going, he's doing all this just because there were no modifier trains except for the ones that you mentioned that were still left in, which were adverb, adverb, and and conjunction noun or. Um, uh, verb which end up creating an adverb. So those ones were left in. But now these other ones are all left in. It'll be really interesting if I go in and play with the things he's suggesting to see whether that's simplified. But what Pepe does is it's all tacit, and he only works with tacit. And he uses the fact that things are tacit to be able to manipulate these things programmatically. And it's really amazing. And yes, I think I asked him at one point if he wanted to be on, and he said depending on his schedule, he'd be willing to do it. So yes, I, I think we can get him on. We'll just have to figure out when. Yeah, I think for, for tacit number six, because as we talk, I think I remember that was on the Kai, the interview with Kai, but he, he made it, might've said it on the interview or afterwards that some of his favorite episodes were tacit and he's not the first person. So we, we always get scared of having these conversations. We love to have them clearly. I mean, I've been trying to pivot to the second question for like 30 minutes now, but <laughs> we just can't, we can't successfully do it. Uh, because I, I think there's a, you know, so much stuff to think about already. Everything Adam said, I'm going to have to go and play around with my mind. But, uh, yeah, when we do tacit number six, we'll, we'll have to try and get Pepe on. Cause I'm sure I'm sure talking to him will will unlock a whole other set of ideas. Speaking of the pivot that I've been failing to make, we're already, we've blown past the hour mark, so I don't actually think we can discuss it in full. But at minimum, I want to mention the the thought that I had out of sort of a discussion with uh, with, with Morton, the, the CTO of Dialog, mentioned previously. And maybe we can get some brief comments and brief discussion, but obviously we're not going to double the length of this podcast because we're already currently over. Um and that is that the question of 
ambivalence, you know, glyphs having both a monadic and dyadic definition. Is that a good idea? And there was a lot of discussion at Minnowbrook about that because I was kind of pointing out, and the the reason I started thinking about this was WeWa. I mean, I'd had the thought before of like, why does every language, J, BQN, APL, they all adopted the ambivalence of APL, which was motivated by a limited set of characters. You know, famously, for some of the characters created, they had to be overstruck. You'd have to type one character, hit backspace, and then type another character to get the tally symbol. So they they were constrained by the number of, symbols they had and so they had to make new symbols out of existing symbols and that that's what motivated the ambivalence to get more are you sure it's that's the only thing that motivated it i don't think so all right all right well pause on if that's the only reason it's one of the reasons at least and the the discussion that i ended up having with morton was that i am i love tacit programming i think the most beautiful code the epitome of elegance when done right is tacit code And Morton's not really a big fan. And I showed him that expression uh, that was symmetric, solving the monotonically increasing or decreasing. And I was like, this has got to be my second favorite piece of code after Cadane's. And he looked at it and he he said to me, you know what? I think I've realized what it is about uh, tacit programming that I don't like. It's when you combine the ambivalence with tacit. It becomes incredibly hard to read. And the reason he noticed that was because I was using the logical or and sort or reverse sort, which are the same symbol in BQN. And so when he saw it, he immediately was like, wait, those are two different things. And then I said, oh, it's it's monadic or. And he's like, it's not monadic or. Those are two different things. And, I was, and then I said it for the next hour and it was irritating him because, you know, or and sort are completely different things. So to call it monadic or, he was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, that's what it is, Morton. And, and so then he kind of had this realization was that it's not that it's per se tacit. It's that it's tacit combined with ambivalence where these things can have multiple definitions that makes it a lot harder to read, which then leads to the question, would a tacit language array language potentially benefit if we got rid of the ambivalence, which we might see a bit with WeWa. Anyways, Adam and Marshall both said that it wasn't the only motivation, so there's immediately some thoughts. I'll, I'll go to Adam first, and then maybe Marshall afterwards. Uh, well, I mean, there are a couple of different things here. One is, is it the only motivation? I think APL growing out of traditional mathematical notation, you immediately have this in traditional mathematics. You've got the same symbol used in different ways in mathematics all over the place. All over the place? Yes, because every child learns. So, well, if you were to make subtraction and negation different symbols, that would be a very fringe choice in programming language design. I mean, Uiwa did it. Can you think of any mainstream language that that doesn't have subtraction and negation on the same symbol? I mean, Haskell does use the same symbol, but you have to add parentheses around uh, the negation case a lot of times to disambiguate, so it is an issue. And Uiwa, not mainstream... And so this is, I actually was, I chatted with a bunch of folks at Minnowbrook and I think it was Roy Sykes literally took his drink, drank, drink and walked away <laughs> when I was proposing, you know, what would happen? And I, I'm not saying this is a good idea. I'm saying it's just an unexplored space. But when I said, what if we got rid of am, uh, ambivalence? And he was like, what about minus and negate? And I was like, I mean, Weewa added like a, a high bar for, for negation. And he was like, no. And he had a beer in his hand and he walked away. <laughs> As a joke, like he wasn't actually upset, but he was just like appalled by the idea that we would even consider doing this. Uh, Adam? Well, I think actually TI Basic uses two different symbols for negation and subtraction. Oh, it's been too long since I used TI Basic. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I believe that uh, TI Basic actually uses the high minus 
and for negation. Um, what does what does Q do, Stephen? Is there a a word for negate? Is it neg or something? I'm inclined to say positive. Yes, affirmative. But it's neg- yes, it's negate. And I think that is because that's I mean that's what when Q, when Stephen brought up Q earlier, that was what made me I was like perfect way to pivot because Q is the one. Well, I guess now there's two. Uh, now that Weave has been added, but it's the it's the and this was mentioned I think in, in the episode with Kai that Q actually does have like fixed arity for its its keyword functions at least, and I think that actually if Q wanted to add a add a bunch more um, combinator facilities, they could design a language feature that like inside your functions if you don't mention X Y and Z based on the arity of like the order that you pass things, you could form different patterns. Once again, I'm not saying that's a, a, a better language choice, but getting rid of the ambivalence, one, would definitely make things, I think, easier, easier to read, and two, could create more possibilities. Uh, I'll let Stephen respond, and then we'll go to Adam. Uh, that's, uh, that's actually one of the motivations for Q over X. It took a lot of um, ambivalent glyphs, I'm speaking carefully here, so plus in its dyadic form, in its binary form, is the familiar add, but in its monadic or unary use is flip or transpose in APL. Um, and the experience with with KX's users was that this was a source of confusion. So the unary versions uh, got replaced with keywords. Yeah, I mean, that's and then that was actually one of the responses. I mean, I didn't respond that to Roy because... He walked away. But when I was talking with other folks, I was like, what is the other? Because like, if I think of the monadic definitions of the common infix binary operations, people were just kind of adding them. I mean, some of them do make sense. Like reciprocal with divides does logically make sense. But like, do we really need a reciprocal monadic function? It's, it's like because we were overloading, it's like we were finding useful things. But like especially for plus and conjugate and uh, what is times and sign, like it's nice to have a sign function, but once again in Q, I'm pretty sure they just have a monadic, uh, a monadic, you know, keyword that is sign, which I actually prefer because like it's not common to use the multiplication symbol in mathematics for the sign operation. We just we had a free monadic definition. Sign's a common thing, and it's kind of similar to multiplication. Like there's there's some connection. So the question is, is like if you're going to use the there are some overloaded operations that would confuse users like what is actually the short list of those minus and negate uh, there's a there's a list of of connected ones on the apl wiki um but and and i i think it was me that came up with the idea of using monadic and an or for sorting because they kind of point up and point down and s- since then i've regretted it and if we were to add sort primitives i would probably use monadic less than equal to and greater than equal to because those do have connection if you're sorting ascending, that means that adjacent elements are either less than or equal to each other. And if you're sorting this, mm. right? Mm. That's fine with me. I was asking Morton. I literally asked him, I think, 14 times at, at Middlebrook. I was like, and I actually started, I asked Peter. I was like, Peter, can you just like slip those in for me? You know, I give you uh, authority. I'm pretty sure that's just as good as the thumbs up from Morton. And he said he'd think about it, but I, I think he was lying to me. Huh? But so I, th- I think there's value. I, I actually have another couple of examples of languages and they are all kind of APL Aviasonian languages. So we're completely breaking this whole thing that all the APL languages are, are inheriting this thing. No, they don't. Because we have Q that doesn't do it. We have Nial that doesn't do it either. It also gives separate names. We have Jelly, which is a J-inspired all tacit language. 
Yeah, yeah. And J uses uh, the underscore as subtraction and the minus for negation. The thing with J is the underscore indicates a negative number, but they still have the monadic minus for negating something. No, no, I was saying in Jelly. Oh, in Jelly, sorry, the sorry. The Jelly language, which is inspired by J, which takes the idea of differentiating between M and underscore and minus using those two symbols, but it uses underscore for uh, subtraction and minus for uh, for negation because, if I understood right, um, that allows you to import data from the world where a, a dash is used to indicate negation or negative numbers. So then it allows you to just take the data in and you don't have to worry about conversion. So rather use a different symbol for an operation thing for that. So, um, so we have qu actually quite a few different languages and, and Jelly is an entirely tacit language. Yeah. And that doesn't use an, the three train rule for constructing things because everything has fixed arity. Mm -hmm. And therefore it's much more, you don't need parentheses. You need, it's kind of, it's a lot of people have, have make the mistake to think that Jelly is stack based because it, it looks like this concatenative thing because you can actually construct whatever you want to express relying on the arity to do the right thing. So I think there's a lot of possibility there. I was going to say, you could even go the other direction. Like they didn't, uh, Jelly didn't add trains. Or you could go the other direction and say, we've got trains and now we've got fixed arity. So we don't have to disambiguate between is the middle function, you know, it always has to be binary. You know, unary, unary, unary could be, you know, multiple. It could mean something else. You could have a, a even wider plethora of invisible patterns. Probably a terrible idea, but you could do it. Exactly. That is exactly what Jelly does. So, so, so people, a lot of people find Jelly is, uh, is a bit overwhelming in, in how it, how it works, but it has all these rules. It says like, if you have this, this arity function with this arity function, this function, and it can, and the funny thing is also that you can have, I think, uh, even more arguments than just two when you will just take them off the stack kind of thing, except it's not actually a stack. It's interesting. Um, look into it, but I think. As we do in mathematics, we have related things. Sometimes you use the same symbol, um, sometimes in different positions, sometimes in super and subscripts. Uh, for example, we can put the exclamation point on the left or the right of, of a name to make some factorial-like things. Um, we have it in in chemistry, uh, physics, where we put little superscripts to the top left and bottom and left and top right and bottom right. And they all mean kind of related things with a number of and of uh, subatomic particles in the in the core of an atom or uh, the overall weight and the charges and all. having related things have related notations uh, it seems to help people to graph notation so you're saying related though but in APLs minus q and neal they're they're identical and that's the thing that i realized coding with wiwa what do you mean that they're identical no, but they're not identical because it's the positional thing that gives the difference. I mean, the glyph is identical. Yeah, but so you, that is exactly what you have, right? If you have a number or a symbol, like exclamation point on the left or the right of an X in traditional mathematical notation, it's the same symbol, but it is the, it's the context in which it appears that makes the difference. I don't even know what the prefix uh, exclamation means. Uh, factorial. No, I mean, well, the postfix is factorial. Prefix, what does that mean? And this is this is the key thing is I agree that like having the overloadedness is is beautiful. It's nice. There's like the the related meanings. I think that the care that Iverson and friends put into the definitions of these is 
is immaculate. Like, and it leads to, like, I love the fact that the ore, the logical ore in BQN is overloaded because then I get this nice mountainy thing. And it's, it's just a coincidence that the problem calls for both the monadic and dyadic definitions. But like, would I like the solution less if the reverse sort and uh, sort had primitives that weren't overloaded? I think I'd like it just as much as long as there was this kind of symmetry between those two glyphs. And when I program in Wiwa, I don't actually miss like the, the connection between the two. I, like it's not even something that the thing that I miss is like, because there's a roughly the same number of glyphs, uh, there's certain things in BQN uh, that don't exist uh, in, in Wiwa. They have kind of like not a full set of the, the functionality that array languages have. I don't miss the overloading at all. It's just, it's easier to read arguably. And I don't really miss it. Like it's a, it's, it's something that is beautiful and that I like, but like my minus pun intended, the minus and negate glyphs. Like I can't think of anything that is irritating to like, Oh, now I need to, to use this. I need to find a different symbol for this. Um, and I think it's not, it's not just primitives. And how do you like uh, plus slash? Monadically, it's the sum. Dyadically, it's the windowed sum. It wouldn't be possible if you didn't do this whole ambivalence thing. Totally fine if they came up with another glyph for uh, the dyadic case because that's something that I didn't even really uh, discover or find super useful until I came to APL. A windowed reduction, I love that pattern, and it does make me sad that I have to do a windows and then a you know three uh, whatever three or an each with the operator if I need to do a plus reduce over those uh, things. I love that APL has the NYs reduction. Uh, and it's sad that BQN and WeWA don't have those, but you can still spell them just as a couple extra characters. But like if, if APL added a new glyph, deprecated the dyadic definition of reduce, not a problem at all. Um, and, te and technically, you could design it as an operator that, uh, that takes a function. Um, so you could still get something... I mean, technically, that's what that's what reduces anyway. So yeah, just change the glyph to be something else, uh, like you know, a slash with, you know, actually we already have that as telly. I was gonna say with like two or three lines in it, and I was like, wait, we got those both already. So you just come up with a different symbol that has has some kind of slash or some you know relation to it. But, but it's it's not just that. Talk, wait, a lot of, I don't know what you do with APL and array languages in general, but but I think there is a. As a kind of a big split between what you see online of people doing toy problems in these array languages, and then people who are actually doing bread and butter programming. Um, I personally find it incredibly useful that I can write some kind of utility function that makes some assumptions, some we say default settings, and then you can give it an optional left argument to change those things. And if we remove the notion of ambiguity, which you can't just remove it from the primitives and not remove it from user-defined functions, because then how could you use user-defined functions in your trains and have them rely on the arity? Everything would have to be fixed arity. Then that option goes away as well. I mean, def definitely there's trade-offs, and that's a good example. If you rely on the fact that you can design an ambivalent function where the unary case kind of assigns a default, that's definitely a trade-off. You're losing that. You, you'd have to either have two functions or just always specify that second argument uh, where you may not, might not want to do that. Uh, and and, and I, th I think the... Or, or you would have to have some kind of like a nothing left argument like BQN has to kind of indicate that, oh, I want to call this dyadic function, but I don't want to give a left argument. And it will check whether the left argument is actually nothing so that, and it all seems kind of stilted to me. Well, I mean, presumably you just use Zilda, which kind of, I mean, especially if you want to have a list of options, um, 
that makes sense. That's just natural. No, but that might be a, in the the left side might be a value that you want inserted in places, yeah, and, then and, and then Zilda would be a value. Then you say, yeah. So that that doesn't. Re There's a good reason why you have a nothing in in BQN rather than just giving it a zero, right? Because you can't just use zero because many things would actually use the zero as left argument, and it means something. Um, and and I think from a like, pragmatic perspective, and that would be a relatively large loss. Um, and the the ease of notation expression and the... I mean, I, I'm not convinced because this... Convinced of what? What Adam's saying or what I said? Yeah, that, it, that it's a relatively large loss. If you take it, you know, relative to all the distortion that having ambivalent functions does mm -hmm. add to the language. I mean, it's... Um, it would be a huge change. Um, and so I think, you know, how big of a change is, is having ambivalent functions versus whatever else you would use. That's not that big relative to it. Um, and I mean, yeah, I think overloading is a pretty big negative mm -hmm. point in the sort of Iversonian paradigm. Um, it comes with the territory and it's not, it, it causes a lot of issues. Um, I have a page on the BQN site about that. Um, so I, I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to say until until it's been tried to do something. And I mean Q is a pretty good example that you can that you can remove ambivalence and come up with a pretty good language, but Q is also has a lot of differences relative to the more APL-like languages. So there's kind of a question of how close can you remain to the Iversonian paradigm? and remove ambivalence that I don't really know the answer to. Oh, excuse me, Marshall. Q does not remove ambivalence. I have a table of overloads on the uh, uh, on the, ref on the reference uh, and, and how to distinguish them. the number of different, the number of different operators assigned to the dollar glyph, for example. Most impressive. <laughs> I was just going to ask, what's the, is there an easy way to delineate in Q what is ambivalent and what is it not is it is it the keywords that it adopts or the keywords is it the ascii symbols that it adopts from k that are still overloaded and all of the keywords that are added are are not or is it fuzzier than that it's, there's a uh, corner cases well so the functions you define can ever can only ever be called um using the fixedity using the apl syntax where you just juxtapose with the argument y you can't define a dyadic you can't use a function dyadically that way. You have to call it with the braces if you're going to call anything that's parenthesized or that's named uh, with more than one argument. Yeah, let me intervene just a little bit here. Um, so we stopped using the terms monadically and dyadically because you can have up to eight arguments. And so, <laughs> why didn't you just add you know words for three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, uh, Stephen? Yeah, that would have been a good idea. <laughs> Oh, so we did that. So oh, we you did have, do that. Um, you know, turn, turn, you know, you have ternary functions. This one, uh, like um, SSR, string search and replace. That's a, that's a ternary function, and there are um, quaternary, uh, quaternary definitions of some of the um, of some of the operators, like um, the at symbol. And they're all carefully they're all carefully laid out and documented because they're all enormously handy. There's a ripe source of confusion if you if you stumble into this as a newbie. I was kind of joking, but 
that is good to know. <laughs> and I did see a very impressive use of the at symbol that was it was a applying a partial it was a partial application scan of a quaternary function that was adding four arguments together and it scanned over a list of four elements and it was using some at scan i didn't fully understand it and uh, it like you end up with a list of partially applied functions where the first one has three arguments the second one has two arguments the third one has one and then the final one is evaluated and i was like holy smokes that is not something that I knew was possible in Q and makes me, I mean, there's too many languages to learn. It makes me want to even, you know, go and learn Q more uh, because that is like a, that's definitely not something you can do in any of the uh, other APL like languages, like end up with a list of partially applied functions. Like that's even tricky to do in a functional language like Haskell. Um, yeah. I think Marshall is in the process of saying that you can't define, you can't make a user defined function, a lambda, a lambda um, that is binary and has infix syntax that is the first argument on its on its left yeah well so it's not it's not really a matter of what you define you can define any function you want but you can't call a named function with infix syntax because that is not part of the syntax there yeah. is no such thing but you but, but if you if you derive a function by saying scanning it so you have your lambda scan um, then the derived function um, has inf has infix syntax. Yeah, that's true. interesting. Or lambda and lambda each. Yeah. We're gonna definitely. We were talking about this before we started recording, but we we have still yet, even though we reached out to at least one, maybe a couple uh, of the Q folks from KXCon, but we're gonna have to get those folks on and explore because that is definitely like a missing part part of my array knowledge is the differences. I mean, uh, Michael Higginson, when we had him on, he talked about a few of the things that he really likes about Q that don't exist. And I think projections is what those are technically called when I was talking about in the terms of the partial applications. But it seems like there's a bunch of stuff that we spend a lot of time. I mean, we spend time talking about all the languages, but because APLJ and BQN all kind of are a lot closer to each other in case slightly different, we, we there are less times when the features, language features of Q come up because they're the only ones that there's the only language that have that language feature. Whereas if we're talking about APL or BQN or J, a lot of them share the same thing. So it comes up. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely want to make sure we have some folks on and we get to talk about that stuff. Cause it, you made that comment too, Stephen, when we were, when we were talking to Lynn Sutherland about Niao is that you were listening and then you had that great clip where you were like, this is a uh, very, very interesting because you're listing off all these things that like Q also has. So potentially there was some, I'm not sure if you know Arthur was aware of Niao, but maybe there was some idea sharing or conversations that happened where both languages ended up uh, implementing them. Or you know, Neil predates Q, so uh, it would be interesting to to know more about that. Uh, anyways, we have blown past. Adam's got his hand up. I mean, we should have predicted this was going to happen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to throw a spin in the works here. A, a what? A spin in the works? A spanner? You call it spanner? A, in the span, a, span, a Spaniard. Yeah. I think, a yeah. spanner? A spanner company. A Spaniard, you said. Um, so, so, Connor, you're looking at, at these this table of the uh, of the J invisible modifiers, and you're going like, wow, you know, this can derive new modifier, derive new adverbs and derive new conjunctions. Yeah. And so I can put an operator in my train. Who knew? Not me. Well, now I know. I didn't know before. Ever heard about hyperators? Hyperators? Yeah, or hyperoperators. Hyperoperators. Actually, I do recall seeing that in the title of an Iverson paper, 
And I can't remember if I perused the first page, but I, I don't recall. I either was confused or, you know, I didn't actually read it. I just saw the title. But uh, I, I have... So, so something like how you reacted to the original seeing Jay's table of invisible modifiers, right? That, that or the you'd... first time I bounced off it. Yeah. yeah. So same kind of reaction I'm hearing from you here. So in so, think about this. You can you can have um, functions adjacent to an operator, and the operator kind of modif builds a new uh, function based on those functions, right? Um, and we've seen that function 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 can kind of combine into invisibly combine into some new function so in a sense you you we're deriving a new function from some old function an invisible uh combinator there um and we've seen the j table of even the extreme combinated uh, it's called conjunction 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 deriving yeah the, the triple conjunction baby the holy but grail Woo! wouldn't it then also be possible to have some kind of entity that took conjunctions and modified them or combined them because think about it the parallel here, we can have an operator that takes functions and derives some new function. And then we can have this train of functions that becomes a new function. Similarly, we have a train of conjunctions that becomes a new conjunction. We should also be able to have a new type of modifier that takes conjunctions and derives a new conjunction, right? Hyperoperators, if functions take arguments and operators take functions, then what is it that takes operators, hyperoperators or hyperators? Is that actually what a hyperoperator is? That's what a hyperoperator would be. Uh, now, they were theorized for a while, and and so you said should. Oh, hold on, I'm getting I'm getting to that. Uh, so so if you look at how Dialog APL, for example, has the defense syntax, we refer to arguments as alpha and omega. We refer to operands as alpha alpha and omega omega. We could refer to hyperends as triple alpha and triple omega. And you know what? NARS 2000 does exactly that. It implements hyperators. Whoa! Connor's mind was just blown for the listener here. They can't, they can't see the picture, but Connor now has his hands on his forehead, covering his eyes partially, and his mind is literally blown. Oh, my so goodness. That'll be for another episode, right? <laughs> okay, so... Well, that's not the direction I was going. We should... <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, even even at modifier trains, aka, you know, operator trains, whatever you want to call them, that's the problem. Is that every language comes up with a different name? I mean, I will admit, Marshall actually borrowed modifiers. I'm not sure if you borrowed. I'm guessing you did from the umbrella term that is in J for both adverbs and conjunctions. Uh, but yes, we keep on renaming these things. And even in my mental model, while you were describing that stuff, I consider the verb trains as combinators, the conjunction or the modifier trains as higher order combinators. They're combinators that take uh, higher order functions. So they're, you know, they form things that take functions as their arguments. And so now you're telling me that technically you could just keep going. And if we've got verb trains and we've got modifier trains, we technically could have whatever, you know, the name is for the next thing, which you're saying is hyper operators. And you're saying that in NARS 2000, so we were saying before this episode, I don't think it got mentioned, that uh, Bob Smith was one of the folks at um, uh, the Middlebrook conference. And he presented a talk on sort of the most recent features that have been added in the last two years to his open source, GPL licensed, free, not on GitHub, but on uh, sourceforge.net, which I think is SVN. And you can go download this. And I was I'm very sad that I didn't think to make the request because I didn't download the program until I got back 
was it doesn't have the input method that I'm used to, which is either a, a back tick for the ride editor or a slash for BKN. I'm not a big fan of the alt control or shift overloading. Anyways, but you're saying now that in this free APO from Bob Smith, hyper operators are implemented. And now, so that's that's a lot of preoccupation with whether you could. I, I would like to suggest, um, and I think I also make this suggestion on behalf of Kay somewhat, <laughs> that uh, in fact, you make more progress if rather than try to you know extend this framework and add more and more combinations, you cut back to what is really necessary. Um, and one of the things I've really found when working with BQN is that... Uh, it's much better to improve the functionality of functions and make it so that, you know, functions can be applied in better ways and, and, you know, easier to work with. And first class functions is really the, um, the core thing that you need to start doing this. Then to make all these mechanisms like the modifiers and the modifier trains for working at a higher level than functions, because once you step up to this higher level, like, modifiers are never going to be as nice to program with as functions are. Like if you have a functions that manipulate functions, well, of course you can make a train out of these um, because they're just functions. So like I said, BQN doesn't even support uh, partially applying a two modifier. You can't pass in one operand. You have to pass in both at once. And so roughly three or four times in the past three years, I've had to write, um, I'd have had to suffer the indignity of writing a one modifier that all it does is take the operand and pass it to a two modifier with another fixed operand. So that's the way you bind an operand into a modifier if you really have to. But I mean, this is so rare that you need this. And even the times that I'm actually doing this, I'm thinking, well, isn't this a sign that maybe I shouldn't have been using a modifier? So, you know, there is this other perspective that rather than trying to add, you know, trying to, you know, make more things that you can do, try to instead uh, do more with the function functionality that you already have with these functions. That's a, a really good point. It would be wonderful if we could get Arthur on to talk about this. I know he's recently been thinking a lot about combinators, um, but they're pretty much just like not there in Q. And the challenge, I mean, the question is, how useful are these things? They're really fun. But how useful are they? Because utility is what um, Q and K are all about. And that and that is, I mean, I did at some point, it wasn't right at the top of the episode, but I think it was about 10 or 15 minutes in, I said, please do suspend. Some of you might be thinking, what is the point? And I am not even sure, like I said, I've spent hours at this point over the last few days since I discovered this on Saturday or Friday night, when, and today is Tuesday, that's when we record, trying to come up with useful examples and have yet to come up with... <laughs> And and specifically, like as I mentioned, I'm focusing on the Oreo and the triple conjunctions uh, because those ones, they're the ones that appeal to me the most. And maybe the answer is, is that this is a very, very cool thing, but the utility of it is really small and the complication of having like, there's no way most folks are going to memorize this full table. Just of the three trains, um, there is like, it looks like 10 to 20 of them. And that's excluding the two trains in this modifier train world. So potentially like... I think, and that's why it makes sense. Like if you think about the history of Jay and what Henry said is they added them and they decided at a certain point, yeah, it's probably not worth the complexity that we're adding to the language. But then for whatever reason, they decided to add them back. And I love it. And I actually, this will excite you, Bob. I think Jay is going to be entering my top five favorite programming languages. We was there. And, and this is 
or this is small little monologue here, but this is why I love the array languages so much. It's been since basically the end of 2019, so we're going on a full four years here, um, and like. I'm still discovering stuff. Like, there's no paradigm out there that has this depth. Like, the fact that... I can't... Who was it? It was you, Adam, that mentioned that NARS 2000 has hyperators? Like, that, that is not where I thought this conversation would be ending at. It's like, oh, let me blow your mind even more. And, and another... So it's just like, there's so much to explore. There's, there's papers that haven't been implemented. One of the things that came up at Middlebrook was, why is partition from APL not an operator? Like, they have cut and J... That is kind of the equivalent of partition, and I could. It would be nice if I had like a partition operator. And then I'm talking to folks there, and then Bob Smith says, "Oh yeah, you know, check out my 1978 paper. I've got a section in it called the, uh, you know, the mentions the partition operator. Haven't gotten around to implementing it, you know, in the last 40, 50 years. But and I'm just like, what? So like, I I had this idea at the conference, and then I'm talking to someone, you know, the implementer of NARS 2000, who then says, oh yeah, I mean, I had that same idea, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, and uh, it's just amazing. And on a sort of negative note, I am. Just 10 minutes ago, when you were describing hyperators, Adam, I do think the equivalent now of category theory uh, behind functional languages like Haskell, this, the extent to the depth that this tacit programming stuff goes, like this is the category theory of array languages, unfortunately. And I say that unfortunately because I've tried to learn category theory and I got to a certain extent, but it just starts to blow your mind at some point and then most folks get confused. And I can see now that... (laughs) This might be the same thing. And it's like, is it even useful? I mean, category theory experts will be like, it's totally useful. You lock all all these kinds of patterns. Other folks will tell you, well, like the learning curve to wrapping your head around what a, a monad and a monoid and an applicative functor and a functor is. Uh, and that's just the beginning. That's not even talking about left and right can extensions, which I do not understand myself. I read the chapter on them, but I'm still confused by it. It's like, if you listen to someone like Edward Komet, he is a category theory god and he just kind of whips through everything. Or Bartosz Maluski, you know, the guy that wrote the book on it. And uh, you listen to them and you're like, okay, you sound excited. And it does seem useful what you're doing, but I have no idea. Potentially that's where we're at here. We're having this like very, very in-depth conversation. We're all excited about it. We're saying it's super cool. We're questioning whether it's useful. And probably most people are lost. And at this point, we're risking this making the, this the longest episode and, and giving Bob more work than he, <laughs> he wants to do. We need to know specifically, should King Arthur go out in search of the Holy Grail? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, is that the cold open? You got two cold opens. There's the cold from. open. Oh, my goodness. Oh, How does the oh. session on Tacit, our fifth session on Tacit, wind up being the longest session recorded? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Well, well, we can call it the fifth and part of the sixth if we want. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I, I hope people don't see the length of this episode and then decide to skip because, uh, you know, hopefully, yeah, we put, we put the King Arthur bit at the beginning. The length isn't a problem because I don't think you'll get that many people getting to this point. <laughs> yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to find a way to plug this, uh, plug this on, uh, on you. maybe I'll make a YouTube video or something. But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, just the fact that Jay has this, is that a good reason for it now being in my top five? Um, probably not. But listen, it's my top five. I get to choose on what motivates languages for being there. And even if it's bad motivation, that's fine with me. Bob? I've got three things. First thing. Okay. Um, I think your, your uh, metaphor of, of category theory is absolutely bang on. 
because category theory ties together. It's a meta theory that ties together ways of putting things together in other disciplines. Mm -hmm. And that's what the use of it is, is you start to see these patterns that extend out to other applications. I think Tacit actually does the same sort of thing. You start to see patterns of how things go together and they can be extended into other areas. And it, it creates this extra level of you having to understand it's not easy but when you get to that that point which i think marshall got to without having these modifier trains um, but i think it's a rare person who can get to that point and i think the modifier trains may help that a little bit um second thing um if you want to get in touch with us, Arraycast, <laughs> contact at Arraycast.com, because I'm going to get us moving towards wrapping up. And uh, we, we love to hear from people. And actually, some of the most recent comments have been just excellent and, and very heartwarming. And, and we really appreciate them. And very interesting as well. Uh, third thing, your CCC. What if you wanted to reverse two of the operators? In J, you've got Lev which refers to the left operator, and dex, which refers to the right operator, and those are both conjunctions. And if you swapped your outside tines, you'd be reversing the two operators. So this is, once again, I mean, Peter's name has been mentioned like four or five times. While I was off focusing on the triple conjunction and the uh, Oreo conjunction, he came up with all these useful things, and he was on the Nuvok page and came across, um, uh, was it dex and lev? Dex and lev. Because he was... He was looking for the equivalence of right and left and the tax, basically, in APL, and then very quickly found those. And then his comment that he made was probably a lot of the useful um, modifier trains that you end up spelling are actually simpler than the one that you're trying to find because one of them is just basically the identity or you know left or right equivalent for uh, these modifier trains. And I said, oh, yeah, that's probably true because even a lot of the forks you write in APL because you don't have a hook – are, are three trains where one of the tines is is one of the tacks. And uh, so, yeah, P, a lot of the things that you're saying, Peter, very quickly, I mean, if I hadn't been so busy wasting my time trying to find the triple conjunction, the Holy Grail, that maybe King Arth, maybe King Arth, I mean, oh, if, if, if we get him on and the first thing he says is, I'm actually an avid listener and episode 64 really loved, uh, five minutes in though, after you had mentioned the uh, triple conjunction, I already had a good one and I was yelling at my podcast for the rest of the, the time. Wouldn't that be... That would be the highlight of my life, folks. If Arthur, if you're listening, please find the triple conjunction and come on the podcast and we will we will name it King Arthur and the Holy Grail. And it will it'll it'll be it'll be the best thing. It'll be yeah, like I said, highlight of my life until I have kids. Uh, and even then, I who think knows? you have to pull a sword out of a stone first, uh, Connor. Oh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, this might be hands down my favorite episode so far. Um, Hyper operators. King Arthur, the triple conjunction, you know, is any of this stuff useful? <laughs> Email Bob to let us know what you think. And we avidly await your results, uh, what you have to say. And if you did enjoy it and you did make it full the whole, the, through the whole two hours, because basically that's where we're at right now, let us know. And if it was too long, also let us know. We do try to keep these closer to an hour, at least under an hour and a half. We failed this time. That's <laughs> if it was too short, just don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, we, uh, we, I mean, we talked about a four-hour podcast in the last episode, and uh, and look at us now. We're, we're approaching two hours. But don't worry. Next one will be shorter. Uh, and yes, thanks to everyone here. This was amazing. I hope the listeners enjoyed. I hope they made it through. And with that, we will say happy array programming. 
Happy, Happy programming. programming. Tacitly.